0: Chapter 1 of The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects This LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by Roger Maline The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward Ruppelt Chapter 1 Project Blue Book and the UFO story In the summer of 1952 a United States Air Force F-86 jet interceptor shot at a flying saucer. This fact, like so many others that make up the full flying saucer story, has never before been told. I know the full story about flying saucers, and I know that it has never before been told because I organized and was chief of the Air Force's Project Blue Book, the special project set up to investigate and analyze unidentified flying objects or UFO reports. UFO is the official term that I created to replace the words flying saucers. There is a fighter base in the United States which I used to visit frequently because during 1951, 1952, and 1953 it got more than its share of good UFO reports. The commanding officer of the fighter group, a full colonel and command pilot, believed that UFOs were real. The Colonel believed in UFOs because he had a lot of faith in his pilots, and they had chased UFOs in their F-86s. He had seen UFOs on the scopes of his radar sets, and he knew radar. The Colonel's intelligence officer, a captain, didn't exactly believe that UFOs were real, but he did think that they warranted careful investigation. The logic the intelligence officer used in investigating UFO reports, and in getting answers to many of them, made me wish many times that he worked for me on Project Blue Book. One day the intelligence officer called me at my base in Dayton, Ohio. He wanted to know if I was planning to make a trip his way soon. When I told him I expected to be in his area in about a week, he asked me to be sure to look him up. There was no special hurry, he added, but he had something very interesting to show me. When we got wind of a good story, Project Blue Book liked to start working on it at once, so I asked the intelligence officer to tell me what he had. But nothing doing. He didn't want to discuss it over the phone. He even vetoed the idea of putting it into a secret wire. Such extreme caution really stopped me because anything can be coded and put in a wire. When I left Dayton about a week later, I decided to go straight to the fighter base, planning to arrive there in the mid-morning. But while I was changing airlines, my reservations got fouled up, and I was faced with waiting until evening to get to the base. I called the intelligence officer and told him about the mix-up, He told me to hang on right there, and he would fly over and pick me up in a T-33 jet. As soon as we were in the air on the return trip, I called the intelligence officer on the interphone and asked him what was going on. What did he have? Why all the mystery? He tried to tell me, but the interphone wasn't working too well, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. Finally, he told me to wait until we returned to his office, and I could read the report myself. Report? If he had a UFO report, why hadn't he sent it into Project Blue Book as he usually did? We landed at the fighter base, checked in our parachutes, May Wests, and helmets, and drove over to his office. There were several other people in the office, and they greeted me with the usual question, "'What's new on the flying saucer front?' I talked with them for a while, but was getting impatient to find out what was on the intelligence officer's mind. I was just about to ask him about the mysterious report when he took me to one side and quietly asked me not to mention it until everybody had gone. Once we were alone, the intelligence officer shut the door, went over to his safe, and dug out a big, thick report.' It was the standard Air Force reporting form that is used for all intelligence reports, including UFO reports. The intelligence officer told me that this was the only existing copy. He said that he had been told to destroy all copies, but had saved one for me to read. With great curiosity, I took the report and started to read. What had happened at this fighter base? About 10 o'clock in the morning, one day, a few weeks before, a radar near the base had picked up an unidentified target. It was an odd target in that it came in very fast, about 700 miles per hour, and then slowed down to about 100 miles per hour. The radar showed that it was located northeast of the airfield, over a sparsely settled area. Unfortunately, the radar station didn't have any height-finding equipment. The operators knew the direction of the target and its distance from the station, but they didn't know its altitude. They reported the target, and two F-86s were scrambled. The radar picked up the F-86s soon after they were airborne and had begun to direct them into the target when the target started to fade on the radar scope. At the time, several of the operators thought that this fade was caused by the targets losing altitude rapidly and getting below the radar's beam. Some of the other operators thought that it was a high-flying target, and that it was fading just because it was so high. In the debate which followed, the proponents of the high-flying theory won out, and the F-86s were told to go up to 40,000 feet, but before the aircraft could get to that altitude, the target had been completely lost on the radar scope. The F-86s continued to search the area at 40,000 feet, but could see nothing. After a few minutes, the aircraft ground controller called the F-86s and told one to come down to 20,000 feet, the other to 5,000 feet, and continue the search. The two jets made a quick letdown With one pilot stopping at twenty thousand feet and the other heading for the deck. The second pilot, who was going down to five thousand feet, was just beginning to pull out when he noticed a flash below and ahead of him. He flattened out his dive a little and headed toward the spot where he had seen the light. As he closed on the spot, he suddenly noticed what he first thought was a weather balloon. A few seconds later, he realized that it couldn't be a balloon because it was staying ahead of him. Quite an achievement for a balloon, since he had built up a lot of speed in his dive, and now was flying almost straight and level at 3,000 feet and was traveling at the mock. Again, the pilot pushed the nose of the F-86 down and started after the object. He closed fairly fast until he came to within an estimated 1,000 yards. Now he could get a good look at the object. Although it had looked like a balloon from above, a closer view showed that it was definitely round and flat, saucer-shaped. The pilot described it as being like a donut without a hole. As his rate of closure began to drop off, the pilot knew that the object was picking up speed, but he pulled in behind it and started to follow. Now he was right on the deck. About this time, the pilot began to get a little worried. What should he do? He tried to call his buddy, who was flying above him somewhere in the area at 20,000 feet. He called two or three times, but could get no answer. Next, he tried to call the ground controller, but he was too low for his radio to carry that far. Once more, he tried his buddy at 20,000 feet, but again, no luck. By now he had been following the object for about two minutes, and during this time had closed the gap between them to approximately five hundred yards. But this was only momentary. Suddenly the object began to pull away, slowly at first, then faster. The pilot, realizing that he couldn't catch it, wondered what to do next. When the object traveled out about a thousand yards, the pilot suddenly made up his mind he did the only thing that he could do to stop the UFO. It was like a David about to do battle with a Goliath, but he had to take a chance. Quickly charging his guns, he started shooting. A moment later, the object pulled up into a climb, and in a few seconds, it was gone. The pilot climbed to 10,000 feet, called the other F-86, and now was able to contact his buddy. They joined up and went back to their base. As soon as he had landed and parked, the F-86 pilot went into operations to tell his story to his squadron commander. The mere fact that he had fired his guns was enough to require a detailed report as a matter of routine. But the circumstances under which the guns actually were fired created a major disturbance at the fighter base that day. After the squadron commander had heard his pilot's story, he called the group commander, the colonel, and the intelligence officer. They heard the pilot's story. For some obscure reason, there was a personality clash, the intelligence officer's term, between the pilot and the squadron commander. This was obvious, according to the report I was reading, because the squadron commander immediately began to tear the story apart and accuse the pilot of cracking up, or of just shooting his guns for the hell of it and using the wild story as a cover-up. Other pilots in the squadron, friends of the accused pilot, including the intelligence officer and a flight surgeon, were called in to testify. All of these men were aware of the fact that in certain instances A pilot can flip for no good reason, but none of them said that he had noticed any symptoms of mental crack-up in the unhappy pilot. None, except the squadron commander. He kept pounding home his idea that the pilot was psycho and used a few examples of what the report called minor incidents to justify his stand. Finally, the pilot who had been flying with the accused man was called in. He said that he had been monitoring the tactical radio channel, but that he hadn't heard any calls from his buddy's low-flying F-86. The squadron commander triumphantly jumped on this point, but the accused pilot tended to refute it by admitting he was so jumpy that he might not have been on the right channel. But when he was asked if he had checked or changed channels after he had lost the object and before he had finally contacted the other f eighty-six he couldn't remember. So ended the pilot's story and his interrogation. The intelligence officer wrote up his report of a UFO sighting, but at the last minute, just before sending it, he was told to hold it back. He was a little unhappy about this turn of events, so he went in to see why the group commander had decided to delay sending the report to Project Blue Book. They talked over the possible reactions to the report if it went out it would cause a lot of excitement maybe unnecessarily yet if the pilot actually had seen what he claimed it was vitally important to get the report in to ATIC immediately the group commander said that he would make his decision after a talk with his executive officer they decided not to send the report and ordered it destroyed When I finished reading, the intelligence officer's first comment was, "'What do you think?' Since the evaluation of the report seemed to hinge upon conflicts between personalities I didn't know, I could venture no opinion, except that the incident made up the most fascinating UFO report I'd ever seen. So I batted the intelligence officer's question back to him. "'I know the people involved,' he replied and I don't think the pilot was nuts. I can't give you the report because Colonel X told me to destroy it, but I did think you should know about it. Later, he burned the report. The problems involved in this report are typical. There are certain definite facts that can be gleaned from it. The pilot did see something, and he did shoot at something, but no matter how thoroughly you investigate the incident, THAT SOMETHING CAN NEVER BE POSITIVELY IDENTIFIED. IT MIGHT HAVE BEEN A HALLUCINATION, OR IT MIGHT HAVE BEEN SOME VEHICLE FROM OUTER SPACE. NO ONE WILL EVER KNOW. IT WAS A UFO. THE UFO STORY STARTED SOON AFTER JUNE 24, 1947, WHEN NEWSPAPERS ALL OVER THE UNITED STATES CARRIED THE FIRST FLYING saucer REPORT. The story told how nine very bright disc-shaped objects were seen by Kenneth Arnold, a Boise, Idaho businessman, while he was flying his private plane near Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. With journalistic license, reporters converted Arnold's description of the individual motion of each of the objects, like a saucer skipping across water, into flying saucer a name for the objects themselves. In the eight years that have passed since Arnold's memorable sighting, the term has become so common that it is now in Webster's Dictionary and is known today in most languages in the world. For a while after the Arnold sighting, the term flying saucer was used to describe all disc-shaped objects that were seen flashing through the sky at fantastic speeds. Before long, reports were made of objects other than disks, and these were also called flying saucers. Today, the words are popularly applied to anything seen in the sky that cannot be identified as a common everyday object. Thus, a flying saucer can be a formation of lights, a single light, a sphere, or any other shape, and it can be any color. Performance-wise, flying saucers can hover, go fast or slow, go high or low, turn 90-degree corners, or disappear almost instantaneously. Obviously, the term flying saucer is misleading when applied to objects of every conceivable shape and performance. For this reason, the military prefers the more general, if less colorful name, unidentified flying objects. UFO pronounced UFO for short officially the military uses the term flying saucer on only two occasions first in an explanatory sense as when briefing people who are unacquainted with the term UFO UFO you know flying saucers and second in a derogatory sense for purposes of ridicule as when it is observed He says he saw a flying saucer. This second form of usage is the exclusive property of those persons who positively know that all UFOs are nonsense. Fortunately, for the sake of good manners, if for no other reason, the ranks of this knowing category are constantly dwindling. One by one, these people drop out, starting with the instant they see their first UFO. Some weeks after the first UFO was seen on June 24, 1947, the Air Force established a project to investigate and analyze all UFO reports. The attitude toward this task varied from a state of near panic early in the life of the project to that of complete contempt for anyone who even mentioned the words flying saucer. This contemptuous attitude toward flying saucer nuts prevailed from mid-1949 to mid-1950. During that interval, many of the people who were, or had been, associated with the project believed that the public was suffering from war nerves. Early in 1950, the project, for all practical purposes, was closed out. At least, it rated only minimum effort. Those in power now reasoned that if you didn't mention the words flying saucers the people would forget them and the saucers would go away but this reasoning was false for instead of vanishing the ufo reports got better and better airline pilots military pilots generals scientists and dozens of other people were reporting ufos and in greater detail than in reports of the past radars which were being built for air defense began to pick up some very unusual targets, thus lending technical corroboration to the unsubstantiated claims of human observers. As a result of the continuing accumulation of more impressive UFO reports, official interest stirred. Early in 1951, verbal orders came down from Major General Charge P. Cabell then Director of Intelligence for Headquarters, U.S. Air Force, to make a study reviewing the UFO situation for Air Force Headquarters. I had been back in the Air Force about six months when this happened. During the Second World War, I had been a B-29 bombardier and radar operator. I went to India, China, and later to the Pacific with the original B-29 wing. I flew two DCFs, and some air medals worth of missions, got out of the Air Force after the war and went back to college. To keep my reserve status while I was in school, I flew as a navigator in an Air Force Reserve troop carrier wing. Not long after I received my degree in aeronautical engineering, the Korean War started and I went back on active duty. I was assigned to the Air Technical Intelligence Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. ATIC is responsible for keeping track of all foreign aircraft and guided missiles. ATIC also had the UFO project. I had just finished organizing a new intelligence group when General Cabell's order to review past UFO reports came down lieutenant colonel rosengarten who received the order at atic called me in and wanted to know if i'd take the job of making the review i accepted when the review was finished i went to the pentagon and presented my findings to major general samford who had replaced general cabell as director of intelligence ATIC soon got the word to set up a completely new project for the investigation and analysis of UFO reports. Since I had made the review of past UFO reports, I was the expert, and I got the new job. It was given the code name, Project Blue Book, and I was in charge of it until late in 1953. During this time, members of my staff and I traveled close to half a million miles. We investigated dozens of UFO reports and read and analyzed several thousand more. These included every report ever received by the Air Force. For the size of the task involved, Project Blue Book was always understaffed, even though I did have ten people on my regular staff, plus many paid consultants representing every field of science. All of us on Project Blue Book had top-secret security clearances so that security was no block in our investigations. Behind this organization was a reporting network made up of every Air Force base intelligence officer and every Air Force radar station in the world and the Air Defense Command's Ground Observer Corps. This reporting net sent Project Blue Book reports on every conceivable type of UFO by every conceivable type of person. What did these people actually see when they reported that they had observed a UFO? Putting aside truly unidentifiable flying object for the present, this question has several answers. In many instances, it has been positively proved that people have reported balloons, airplanes, stars and many other common objects as UFOs. The people who make such reports don't recognize these common objects because something in their surroundings temporarily assumes an unfamiliar appearance. Unusual lighting conditions are a common cause of such illusions. A balloon will glow like a ball of fire just at sunset, or an airplane that is not visible to the naked eye suddenly starts to reflect the sun's rays and appears to be a silver ball pilots in f-94 jet interceptors chase venus in the daytime and fight with balloons at night and people in los angeles see weird lights on october eighth nineteen fifty four many los angeles newspapers and newscasters carried an item about a group of flying saucers bright lights flying in a v formation The lights had been seen from many locations over Southern California, pilots saw them while bringing their airplanes into Los Angeles International Airport, Air Force pilots flying out of Long Beach saw them, two CBS reporters in Hollywood gave an eyewitness account, and countless people called police and civil defense officials. All of them excitedly reported lights they could not identify. The next day, the Air Force identified the UFOs. They were Air Force airplanes, KC-97 aerial tankers, refueling B-47 jet bombers in flight. The reason for the weird effect that startled so many Southern Californians was that when the refueling is taking place, a floodlight on the bottom of the tanker airplane lights up the bomber that is being refueled. The airplanes were flying high and slowly, so no sound was heard. Only the bright floodlights could be seen. Since most people, even other pilots, have never seen a night aerial refueling operation and could not identify the odd lights they saw, the lights became UFOs. In other instances, common everyday objects look like UFOs because of some odd quirk in the human mind, a star or planet that has been in the sky every day of the observer's life suddenly takes off at high speed on a highly erratic flight path. Or a vapor trail from a high-flying jet, seen a hundred times before by the observer, becomes a flying saucer. Some psychologists explain such aberrations as being akin to the crowd behavior mechanism at work in the bobby-socks craze. Teenagers don't know why they squeal and swoon when their current fetish sways and croons. Yet everybody else is squealing, so they squeal too. Maybe that great comedian Jimmy Durante has the answer. Everybody wants to get into the act. I am convinced that a certain percentage of UFO reports come from people who see flying saucers because others report seeing them. But this will-to-see may have deeper roots, almost religious implications, for some people. Consciously or unconsciously, they want UFOs to be real and to come from outer space. These individuals, frightened perhaps by threats of atomic destruction or lesser fears, who knows what, act as if nothing that men can do can save the earth. Instead, they seek salvation from outer space, on the forlorn premise that flying saucer men, by their very existence, are wiser and more advanced than we. Such people may reason that a race of men capable of interplanetary travel have lived well into, or through, an atomic age. They have survived, and they can tell us their secret of survival. Maybe the threat of an atomic war unified their planet and allowed them to divert their war effort to one of social and technical advancement. To such people, a searchlight on a cloud, or a bright star, is an interplanetary spaceship. If all the UFO reports that the Air Force has received in the past eight years could be put in this psychological quirk category, Project Blue Book would never have been organized. It is another class of reports that causes the Air Force to remain interested in UFOs. This class of reports are called unknowns. In determining the identity of a UFO, the project based its method of operation on a well-known psychological premise. This premise is that to get a reaction from one of the senses, there must be a stimulus. If you think you see a UFO, you must have seen something. Pure hallucinations are extremely rare. For anything flying in the air, the stimulus could be anything that is normally seen in the air. Balloons, airplanes, and astronomical bodies are the commoner stimuli. Birds and insects are common also, but usually are seen at such close range that they are nearly always recognized infrequently observed things such as sundogs mirages huge fireballs and a host of other unusual flying objects are also known stimuli on project blue book our problem was to identify these stimuli we had methods for checking the location at any time of every balloon launched anywhere in the united states to a certain degree the same was true for airplanes The UFO observer's estimate of where the object was located in the sky helped us to identify astronomical bodies. Huge files of UFO characteristics, along with up-to-the-minute weather data and advice from specialists, permitted us to identify such things as sundogs, paper caught in updrafts, huge meteors, etc., This determination of the stimuli that triggered UFO sightings, while not an insurmountable task, was a long, tedious process. The identification of known objects was routine and caused no excitement. The excitement and serious interest occurred when we received UFO reports in which the observer was reliable and the stimuli could not be identified these were the reports that challenged the project and caused me to spend hours briefing top u s officials these were the reports that we called unknowns of the several thousand ufo reports that the air force has received since 1947 some fifteen to twenty percent fall into this category called unknown This means that the observer was not affected by any determinable psychological quirks, and that after exhaustive investigation, the object that was reported could not be identified. To be classed as an unknown, a UFO report also had to be good, meaning that it had to come from a competent observer and had to contain a reasonable amount of data. Reports are often seen in the newspapers that say, Mrs. Henry Jones, of 5464 South Elm, said that 10 o'clock a.m. she was shaking her dust mop out of her bedroom window when she saw a flying saucer, or Henry Armstrong was driving between Grundy Center and Rhinebeck last night when he saw a light. Henry thinks it was a flying saucer. This is not a good UFO report. This type of UFO report, if it was received by Project Blue Book, was stamped Insufficient Data for Evaluation and dropped into the dead file, where it became a mere statistic. Next to the Insufficient Data file was a file marked CP. This meant Crackpot. Into this file went all reports from people who had talked with flying saucer crews who had inspected flying saucers that had landed in the United States, who had ridden in flying saucers, or who were members of Flying Saucer crews. By Project Blue Book standards, these were not good UFO reports either. But here is a good UFO report with an unknown conclusion. On July 24, 1952, two Air Force colonels, flying a B-25, took off from Hamilton Air Force Base near San Francisco for Colorado Springs, Colorado. The day was clear, not a cloud in the sky. The colonels had crossed the Sierra Nevada between Sacramento and Reno and were flying east at 11,000 feet on Green 3, the aerial highway to Salt Lake City. At 3.40 p.m., They were over the Carson Sink area of Nevada, when one of the colonels noticed three objects ahead of them and a little to their right. The objects looked like three F-86s flying a tight V formation. If they were F-86s, they should have been lower, according to civil air regulations. But on a clear day, some pilots don't watch their altitude too closely. In a matter of seconds, the three aircraft were close enough to the B-25 to be clearly seen. They were not F-86s. They were three bright silver delta-wing craft with no tails and no pilot's canopies. The only thing that broke the sharply defined clean upper surface of the triangular wing was a definite ridge that ran from the nose to the tail. In another second, the Three Deltas made a slight left bank and shot by the B-25 at terrific speed. The colonels estimated that the speed was at least three times that of an F-86. They got a good look at the Three Deltas, as the unusual craft passed within 400 to 800 yards of the B-25. When they landed at Colorado Springs, the two colonels called the intelligence people at Air Defense Command headquarters to make a UFO report. The suggestion was offered that they might have seen three F-86s. The colonels promptly replied that if the objects had been F-86s, they would have easily been recognized as such. The colonels knew what F-86s looked like. Air Defense Command relayed the report to Project Blue Book. An investigation was started at once. Flight Service, which clears all military aircraft flights, was contacted and asked about the location of aircraft near the Carson sink area at 3.40 p.m. They had no record of the presence of aircraft in that area. Since the colonels had mentioned Delta Wing aircraft, and both the Air Force and the Navy had a few of this type, we double-checked. The Navy's deltas were all on the east coast, at least all of the silver ones were. A few deltas painted the traditional navy blue were on the west coast, but not near Carson Sink. The Air Force's one delta was temporarily grounded. Since balloons once in a while can appear to have an odd shape, all balloon flights were checked for both standard weather balloons and the big 100-foot diameter research balloons. Nothing was found. A quick check on the two colonels revealed that both of them were command pilots and that each had several thousand hours of flying time. They were stationed at the Pentagon. Their highly classified assignments were such that they would be in a position to recognize anything that the United States knows to be flying anywhere in the world. Both men had friends who had seen flying saucers at some time, but both had openly voiced their skepticism. Now, from what the colonel said when they were interviewed after landing at Colorado Springs, they had changed their opinions. Nobody knows what the two colonels saw over Carson's sink. However, it is always possible to speculate. Maybe they just thought they were close enough to the three objects to see them plainly. The objects might have been three F-86s. Maybe flight service lost the records. It could be that the three F-86s had taken off to fly in the local area of their base, but had decided to do some illegal sightseeing. Flight service would have no record of a flight like this. Maybe both of the colonels had hallucinations there is a certain mathematical probability that any one of the above speculative answers is correct, correct for this one case. If you try this type of speculation on hundreds of sightings with unknown answers, the probability that the speculative answers are correct rapidly approaches zero. Maybe the colonels actually did see what they thought they did, a type of craft completely foreign to them, Another good UFO report provides an incident in which there is hardly room for any speculation of this type. The conclusion is more simply, unknown, period. On January twentieth, 1952, at 7.20 in the evening, two master sergeants, both intelligence specialists, were walking down a street on the Fairchild Air Force Base close to Spokane, Washington, Suddenly, both men noticed a large, bluish-white, spherical-shaped object approaching from the east. They stopped and watched the object carefully, because several of these UFOs had been reported by pilots from the airbase over the past few months. The sergeants had written up the reports on these earlier sightings. The object was traveling at a moderately fast speed on a horizontal path. AS IT PASSED TO THE NORTH OF THEIR POSITION AND DISAPPEARED IN THE WEST, THE SERGEANTS NOTICED THAT IT HAD A LONG, BLUE TAIL. AT NO TIME DID THEY HEAR ANY SOUND. THEY NOTED CERTAIN LANDMARKS THAT THE OBJECT HAD CROSSED AND ESTIMATED THE TIME TAKEN IN PASSING THESE LANDMARKS. THE NEXT DAY THEY WENT OUT AND MEASURED THE ANGLES BETWEEN THESE LANDMARKS IN ORDER TO INCLUDE THEM IN THEIR REPORT. When we got the report at ATIC, our first reaction was that the master sergeants had seen a large meteor. From the evidence, I had written off as meteors all previous similar UFO reports from this airbase. The sergeant's report, however, contained one bit of information that completely changed the previous picture. At the time of the sighting, there had been a solid 6,000-foot-thick overcast at 4,700 feet, and meteors don't go that low. A few quick calculations gave a rather fantastic answer. If the object was just at the base of the clouds, it would have been 10,000 feet from the two observers and traveling 1,400 miles per hour. But regardless of the speed, the story was still fantastic. The object was no jet airplane because there was no sound. It was not a searchlight because there were none on the air base. It was not an automobile spotlight because a spotlight will not produce the type of light the sergeants described. As a double check, however, both men were questioned on this point. They stated firmly that they had seen hundreds of searchlights and spotlights playing on clouds and that this was not what they saw. Beyond these limited possibilities, the sergeant's UFO discourages fruitful speculation. The object remains unidentified. The UFO reports made by the two colonels and the two master sergeants are typical of hundreds of other good UFO reports which carry the verdict CONCLUSION UNKNOWN Some of these UFO reports have been publicized, but many have not. Very little information pertaining to UFOs was withheld from the press, if the press knew of the occurrence of specific sightings. Our policy on releasing information was to answer only direct questions from the press. If the press didn't know about a given UFO incident, they naturally couldn't ask questions about it. Consequently, such stories were never released. In other instances, when the particulars of a UFO sighting were released, they were only the bare facts about what was reported. Any additional information that might have been developed during later investigations and analyses was not released. There is a great deal of interest in UFOs, and the interest shows no signs of diminishing. Since the first flying saucer skipped across the sky in the summer of 1947, thousands of words on this subject have appeared in every newspaper and most magazines in the United States. During a six-month period in 1952 alone, 148 of the nation's leading newspapers carried a total of over 16,000 items about flying saucers. During July 1952, reports of flying saucers cited over Washington, D.C. cheated the Democratic National Convention out of precious headline space. The subject of flying saucers, which has generated more unscientific behavior than any other topic of modern times, has been debated at the meetings of professional scientific societies causing scientific tempers to flare where unemotional objectivity is supposed to reign supreme yet these thousands of written words and millions of spoken words all attesting to the general interest have generated more heat than light out of this avalanche of print and talk the full factual true story of ufo's has emerged only on rare occasions The general public, for its interest in UFOs, has been paid off in misinformation. Many civilian groups must have sensed this, for while I was chief of Project Blue Book I had dozens of requests to speak on the subject of UFOs. These civilian requests had to be turned down because of security regulations. I did give many official briefings, however, behind closed doors to certain groups associated with the government, all of them upon request. The subject of UFOs was added to a regular series of intelligence briefings given to students at the Air Force's Command and Staff School and to classes at the Air Force's Intelligence School. I gave briefings to the technical staff at the Atomic Energy Commission's Los Alamos laboratory where the first atomic bomb was built. The theater where this briefing took place wouldn't hold all of the people who tried to get in, so the briefing was recorded and replayed many times. The same thing happened at AEC's Sandia base, near Albuquerque. Many groups in the Pentagon and the Office of Naval Research requested UFO briefings. Civilian groups, made up of some of the nation's top scientists and industrialists, and formed to study special military problems, worked in a UFO briefing. Top Air Force commanders were given periodic briefings. Every briefing I gave was followed by a discussion that lasted anywhere from one to four hours. In addition to these, Project Blue Book published a classified monthly report on UFO activity, Requests to be put on distribution for this report were so numerous that the distribution had to be restricted to Major Air Force Command Headquarters. This interest was not caused by any revolutionary information that was revealed in the briefings or reports. It stemmed only from a desire to get the facts about an interesting subject. Many aspects of the UFO problem were covered in these official briefings, I would give details of many of the better reports we received, our conclusions about them, and how those conclusions were reached. If we had identified a UFO, the audience was told how the identification was made. If we concluded that the answer to a UFO sighting was unknown, the audience learned why we were convinced it was unknown. Among the better sightings that were described fully to interested government groups were the complete story of the Lubbock lights, including the possible sighting of the same V-shaped light formations at other locations on the same night, the story of a group of scientists who detected mysterious nuclear radiation when UFOs were sighted, and all of the facts behind such famous cases as the Mantell incident, the Florida scoutmaster who was burned by a flying saucer, and headline-capturing sightings at Washington, D.C. I showed them what few photographs we had, the majority of which everyone has seen, since they have been widely published in magazines and newspapers. Our collection of photographs was always a disappointment as far as positive proof was concerned, because, in a sense, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. We had no clear picture of a saucer, just an assortment of blurs, blotches, and streaks of light. The briefings included a description of how Project Blue Book operated and a survey of the results of the many studies that were made of the mass of UFO data we had collected. Also covered were our interviews with a dozen North American astronomers, the story of the unexplained green fireballs of New Mexico, and an account of how a committee of six distinguished United States scientists spent many hours attempting to answer the question, Are the UFOs from outer space? Unfortunately, the general public was never able to hear these briefings. For a long time, contrary to present thinking in military circles, I have believed that the public also is entitled to know the details of what was covered in these briefings. Less, of course, the few items pertaining to radar that were classified secret, and the names of certain people. But withholding these will not alter the facts in any way. A lot has already been written on the subject of UFOs, but none of it presents the true, complete story. Previous forays into the UFO field have been based on inadequate information, and have been warped to fit the personal biases of the individual writers. Well-meaning though these authors may be, the degree to which their books have misinformed the public is incalculable. It is high time that we let the people know. The following chapters present the true and complete UFO story, based on what I learned about UFOs while I was chief of Project Blue Book, the Air Force's project for the investigation and analysis of UFO reports. Here is the same information that I gave to Secretary of the Air Force, Thomas K. Finletter, to the Air Force commanders, to scientists and industrialists. This is what the Air Force knows about unidentified flying objects. You may not agree with some of the official ideas or conclusions. Neither did a lot of people I briefed. But this is the story. End of chapter 1